Please open your Bibles with me this morning to John's Gospel, John chapter 19. And I really encourage you, if you, didn't, uh, if you weren't able to bring a copy of Scripture, we have extra copies under the chairs in front of you, and you, it would be helpful for you to follow along. We're going to pay attention to just a few passages this morning. But we're going to start in John chapter 19. One of my favorite devotional authors and a pastor from a previous generation, A.W. Tozer, writes these words about the resurrection. He wrote, we understand and we acknowledge that the resurrection has placed a glorious crown upon all of Christ's suffering. It's true. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. It's real. There are so many eyewitnesses. We have more eyewitnesses to this than many historical events have, going back that far. You expect me to say that this morning, not just because I'm supposed to on Easter. I really believe it. I believe the Bible is accurate in saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as he said he would. And he's ascended to his Father's right hand. As we come to Easter morning, all of us in our own unique mindset, we, we picture in our minds the empty tomb. Whether it's a picture from your childhood book that you remember still, or whether you've had the privilege, as many of you have, to, to go on a tour of the Holy Land and you've stood at the garden tomb and maybe even entered into it. Um, I've had that opportunity and it's, it's breathtaking, if indeed that is the tomb. You have... Pictures in your mind, scenes, like I do. And there are many faces that appeared in our mind at that empty tomb that we picture. I mean, that Sunday morning, early that Sunday morning, as we read just a few moments ago, John and Peter had a foot race to that tomb. And John won the foot race, and then only to have Peter run up behind him and shove him to the side and rush into the tomb. That happened at that tomb. Before John and Peter had their foot race and shoving match, Mary Magdalene had been at that tomb that morning. And it's Mary who will, we believe, have first contact with the resurrected Jesus. But before Mary Magdalene was on that, at that tomb in that Sunday morning, angels had been there, and they had been busy as you compare the different gospel accounts, you, you find that the angels came to that tomb that you're picturing in your mind to move the stone away from the opening. I like what Dr. Steve Lawson says. The angels moved the stone not to let Jesus out, but to let everyone else in. The angels not only moved the stone at, at that tomb that's in your mind's eye, the, the angels also greeted the women And they're the ones that delivered the good news. He is not here. He's risen, just as he said. It was at that tomb. Before the angels were at that tomb, if you you think back to the Saturday, the day before, you went to that tomb, and, and it was sealed, and there were soldiers guarding it, placed there so that out of fear that our Lord... Uh, would uh, have his body would be stolen by his disciples, and there would be a deception and, and all that. So soldiers were posted there for the whole day and a little longer than the previous day, Saturday. 
But before that Saturday and the soldiers, go back a little further to Friday. It's not quite sundown, but the sun is starting to touch the horizon to close out Friday. And that's where our text finds us. Because there's a face in the scene at the tomb on Friday evening I have some questions about. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 19. Look at verse 38. Our Lord has, has died. He's yielded up his spirit on the cross. And in John 19 verse 38 we read these words. After these things... Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he, Joseph, came and took away his body. The other Gospels will bear out that it wasn't like his body was on the ground and we just had to take it. Joseph took him off the cross. Verse 39, and Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Starts out with the name of a man, Joseph of Arimathea. This is his first mention in the gospel. His only mention in all four gospels. I'm sorry, he's in all four gospels. It's the first mention here, of course, at the end of John for this gospel. And what do we know about him? He was a rich individual, very wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which I'll say more about in just a few moments, but it was the governing body of the Jews. But one of the Gospels even points out that he not only was a member of that, but he was a prominent member, a senior member of that body. That's significant. And also in the Gospels, we read that he cast a dissenting vote as far as crucifying Jesus of Nazareth. He was not in favor of it. And then this text even says he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Another Gospel account says he was looking for the kingdom. But he's not a secret disciple anymore. He removed the body of Jesus from the cross. And he gave up his own family tomb in that garden. But that's not the guy that has my curiosity going this morning. It's the next guy. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus only shows up in John's gospel, but he does show up three times. And I want to know, on this particular Friday night, why is Nicodemus here at the tomb with the body of Jesus of Nazareth? Why is he here? Why now? Why is he making himself so vulnerable? Why does he seem, with Joseph, so unflinching in their mission to treat the body of Jesus with such dignity and reverence. 
Why is Nicodemus getting his hands bloodied? I want to know. I want to know, what is Nicodemus' story? And, and, and I want to know, why has the Apostle John pulled Nicodemus across the pages of his entire gospel? Nicodemus shows up at our Lord's first visit to Jerusalem as he started his public ministry. We find Nicodemus there. We find Nicodemus again in John's gospel, midway through our Lord's ministry, on another visit to Jerusalem. And then we have Nicodemus show up here at the end. What's going on? Well, I believe that as you get to know this stranger named Nicodemus, as you understand and hear his story, it will force some heavy questions of your own heart this morning this Easter morning, 2023. So what we're going to do is this. I believe we can build out his divinely inspired narrative by thinking in terms of just three meetings. That's it. Three meetings will give us Nicodemus' story. Now here's what I want you to do. You've got to work with me this morning. Don't just sit there. You've got to do some work. Every, all, every meeting we go to now, all three meetings in the pages of John's Gospel, I want you to get an answer to three questions for each of those meetings. Same three questions. Every meeting. First of all, where is he in that meeting? Secondly, who is he with in that meeting? And then thirdly, I want you to get an answer to this question for each of the three meetings. What is Nicodemus' response? So we're going to go to three meetings, and you're looking for three things in each meeting. Let's go to meeting number one. Meeting number one. And for this meeting, go with me to John chapter 3. John and chapter 3. As you know, the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow a fairly tight trajectory with each other. There are some differences, uh, not disagreements, just uh, different perspectives and and different emphases, and then John, of course, is writing um, outside of that stream somewhat and giving us a lot of um, personal conversations, not including all the miracles that we saw in the other Gospels. It's John's writing by design to introduce Jesus as a Savior of the world. And as he does that, he, uh, we find ourselves three chapters in, and Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's in an interview. He's in a private conversation. This is meeting number one. Look at verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, All right, look, truly, truly, I'm saying to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Period. Well, Nicodemus said to him, So, how can a man be born when he's old? 
He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I'm saying to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not be amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's like this, Nicodemus, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, okay, are you, and it's an emphasis that has the article in the Greek here, are you the teacher of Israel A well-known teacher, kind of the teacher of teachers in Israel. Are you the teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and testify about what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus, it's like this. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But, Nicodemus... He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is meeting number one. So the first thing we want to know is this, right? Where is he? Where is Nicodemus? Let's set the scene here. We know this, it's night, and we know the motive of why this meeting is happening at night. It's that he was fearing the Jews. He came to him at night. You say, why would he need to fear the Jews? Why a private meeting? Some have even surmised, some commentators, that this is happening at a secondary home that the Apostle John uh, had as his family. His, his dad would have had a, a house here um, as, a, as a businessman for when they were in Jerusalem. I, I don't know how we can prove that, but that is one notion that people have. 
But we know this. It's night. This is in Jerusalem. And it's a private meeting. I don't know how it got set up. Was it an appointment or was it accident? But why at night? Why is Nicodemus nervous? Well, it says that he is, in verse 1, a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed that they were the direct, undiluted descendants of Abraham. And they coined themselves the standard bearers of the Mosaic law. They had to work alongside in the government there of of the Jews. They had to work alongside the Herodians who were soft towards Rome and progress and worldliness. And they also had to work alongside the Sadducees who don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in any of that stuff. But not the Pharisees. They were the hardliners. They had the Old Testament. They were stewards of the Old Testament. Not every Pharisee was a member of the Sanhedrin, and not every Sanhedrin was a member of the Pharisees. But when you had, when you had both of those in one person, that's significant. He was a Pharisee, and it says here he was a ruler of the Jews. That meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is also known as the court of 70 elders. This is the pointy part of the spear, if you will, in Jewish government and religious culture. Uh, This would be the pinnacle as far as you could go in the Jewish hierarchy, if you will. And he sat precariously perched as a member of the 70 elders and also a Pharisee. Say, what else do we know about this guy? Well, our Lord is going to ask him, as we read, are you not the teacher? This was the teacher of teachers. These three designations gave him visibility that any Jewish man would salivate over. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. And he was a teacher of all the other Pharisees and Sanhedrin members. This is Nicodemus. So where is he? It's at night in Jerusalem. But we have a second question we need an answer to. Who was he with in this meeting? This one's pretty straightforward. This is one-on-one with the man Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, he knew about Jesus. Not just with uh, what had been taught that week in Jerusalem by Jesus, but Many news bearers coming out of Galilee were bringing these reports of this man from Nazareth who was performing miracles there and in front of a lot of people, not in a corner. He knew of Jesus, and you know something? Jesus knew of Nicodemus, who was the teacher. And here they go one-on-one. As I said, this is our Lord's first recorded visit to Jerusalem in his public ministry. I'm I'm captured by something that Nicodemus says here. In verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these, look at the next word, signs that you do unless God is with him. What are these signs? These are attesting miracles. It's not a magic show. These are miracles that are being done to emphasize and highlight and punctuate the authority of the message he was preaching. 
Now John, as he writes his gospel, limits himself to eight miracles that our Lord did. And each miracle that John includes in his gospel was a miracle that was meant to teach, usually the disciples. Only eight. The other gospels point out many, many more. But John doesn't let the reader off the hook because at the end of his gospel, he writes this verse, John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There had been many miracles already this early on, even in Jerusalem. And Nicodemus had heard about him. He says, he didn't say sign, he said plural, signs. So this is one-on-one in Jerusalem at night. The teacher with the man Jesus from Nazareth. But there's a third question we need to answer in this meeting. We know where he is, we know who he's with. But the third question is this. What is his response to this meeting? What is Nicodemus' response? You ready for this? One word. Silence. Nicodemus starts the conversation, volleys a few questions or objections just to push the conversation forward. And finally, our Lord lets loose with a lot of nouns and verbs all the way down to verse 21, one-on-one with Nicodemus. And what's his response? We don't hear anything else from Nicodemus. It's silence. Can you blame him? I tried not to rush through that reading that I did. I tried to let you feel and sense the tension and the confusion and the authority and the directness. Can you blame Nicodemus, the teacher, the Pharisee, the ruler, for silence at this point. Because everything that Jesus of Nazareth just spoke to Nicodemus would turn Nicodemus' world on its head. Everything. This man precariously perched on the pointy tip of the spear of Jewish religion and culture, it would totally remove him from that. What do you mean? Well, I'd like to summarize what our Lord said with four pointed statements. First of all, the first statement that Nicodemus heard was this. Nicodemus, you can't see. You can't see. He's saying this to a man that has decades of not only study behind him, and a sturdy-year-old man saying, I can't see. What is he... I have decades of not only study behind me, but lectures behind me, teaching behind me. Of all the people in our culture and anyone in this city right now, I'm the one that can see. Jesus says, you can't see. You can't see the kingdom. There's a second statement our Lord made, very pointed. Not only you can't see, but you aren't alive. I know you have ears listening to me, and I know you have a mouth because you ask questions, but you're not alive. You're not alive. 
And he's saying this to a guy that, from his perspective, as the Jews looked at him, he was the one that was the most alive because he knew the most. He had the greatest knowledge of the Old Testament in order to teach others coming up the ranks behind him. They would say he's the most alive. Jesus says you aren't even alive. You're not alive. You need to be born. There's a third pointed statement. Not only, Nicodemus, you can't see. Nicodemus, you aren't alive. Number three, Nicodemus, you need me. You need me. Remember verse 13? No one has ascended into heaven. You haven't, Nicodemus, have you? But I descended from heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you know about that, right? Because you like are the teacher of the Old Testament. Remember the story? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Everyone looked at Nicodemus any day, any place in the city, in the temple complex, in, the, in the, that portion of Israel, and they'd look at him and say, we need Nicodemus. We wish we had more than one Nicodemus. One Nicodemus isn't enough to go around with his great teaching. Everyone needed Nicodemus, except Jesus. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you can't see, you're not alive, and you need me. There was one more pointed statement. Number four, he says this. And when you have me, here it is, you will change. Things will be different. He said in verses six through eight, when you're born of the Spirit, it's like the wind blowing. You can, it, 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 it makes its presence felt. There's change and effect that you can't deny. And then he said again in verses 20 and 21, or it's like this, when you come to the light, coming into the light's painful. It hurts your eyes. You're vulnerable. But you come to the light because there's been change in your life as the owner of eternal life. And it was wrought in God, this change. So can you blame Nicodemus for responding with silence? Nicodemus, you can't see. You aren't alive. You need me. And you'll have to change. See it. Nicodemus is leaning in. He, he's probing. He's, he's weighing all these words that are seasoned with such grace and backed by such authority and power. He knew. If he were to be born again, everything would change in his life. And I mean everything. How he viewed his upbringing the visibility he enjoyed, the lectures he had given, the theology he had embraced, and even the wealth he had, being born again would change everything. See, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder. Okay, this is one-on-one -on -one conversation going on here. How did John learn of this private conversation? You wonder. Just, I'm just asking a question. How did John know about this to write such detail? And then, having these details, why did John provide footprints from Nicodemus 
for the rest of the gospel? Just asking the question. Could it be that this is where things started to stir? We're going to read in John chapter 12, verse 42, later in our Lord's ministry, not too much later, these words. Nevertheless, many even, listen, of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Something is stirring. And remember, you got to remember too why John even wrote this gospel. He tells you why. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, here's the reason I'm writing these, 20, these 22 chapters, 21 chapters. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's writing for people that are going to read it and, and have faith because of what they read. And maybe that faith would begin maybe like a scene from chapter 3. All I know is, though, sometimes people need time for truth to soak in. Are you with them? Sometimes you just need to let things saturate your mind. Let things settle into your thinking. Or you can look at it this way. <laughs> when the wind blows, it may not be a hurricane gale, but only a gentle breeze. But still have the same effect. And that takes us to our second meeting. Our second meeting. Our second meeting is in chapter 7. Go with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And once you're in that chapter, join me in verse 45. We'll be catch, capturing a, a scene already in action, but we'll backtrack in just a moment. But I want you to feel the urgency that vo verse 45 begins with. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? Why did you not bring Jesus? Arrest him and bring him, like we said. And the officers answered, oh man, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered them and said, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Sounds like a loaded question. Ruler, Pharisee, what are you doing here, John? Verse 49, the legalists say, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. And look who speaks up in verse 50. Nicodemus, John inserts, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, their colleague and leader. You are not also from Galilee, are you, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Hmm. Well, all right, let's get after our three questions for this scene. The first question is, where is he? Let's set the scene. This time it's not private. This time it's a public meeting. And he is with the chief priest, he's with the Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin, anyone who is everyone, secular and religious realm, is in this meeting. And there's a panic. There's a spectacle in their mind, 
in their words, going on. They're in the city of Jerusalem in the temple complex. It's during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus of Nazareth had just said that he is living water. Just feel the tenseness. Go back in this chapter, chapter 7, look at verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And Jesus answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Here's an overt claim to sinlessness. Jesus is making a public claim that he is equal with the Father. He's making the claim that he is without sin. And he's now saying, you all need me, the fountain of living waters. That that would tick off these guys. Just a little. Second question in this second meeting Who is Nicodemus with? Well, as I mentioned, he's with the Sanhedrin, the court of 70. In this meeting, different from the one in chapter 3, Nicodemus is back with the gang. I mean, these are his boys. Uh, This is his comfort level. I mean, he walks in a room anytime with these 70, and everyone knows, A, he's in the room, B, where he is in the room. These are his guys. He's in a safe, familiar place where his influence is felt immediately and he is respected immensely. Everyone's aware of him. His former students, his current students, and those fawning future students outside this gathering. They want Nicodemus. They want access to Nicodemus. But now the gang is worked up. They are lathered up because crowds are facing Jesus of Nazareth instead of facing them. There are rumors of of miraculous signs. There's claims of deity and sinlessness. Sinlessness. Listen, these guys are so ticked off at the end of John chapter 7 that if you listen, if you look, if if you enter that scene, there's a seething jealousy that will birth a murderous hatred and a compromising partnership even with the likes of Herodians and Sadducees. Everyone in the room, though, except Nick, what's his response? Did you see it when we read it? Verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? What's his response? One word. Separation. There's space suddenly appearing. There's daylight now appearing where it never used to exist before. There's a separation starting to be noticed between Nicodemus 
and the lock-tight solidarity of the religious-political elite of the Jews. In other words, suddenly the gang is separating from him, and he's noticing he's moving away from the gang. You know what he just did? He reached back to the Old Testament, some argue it's Deuteronomy chapter 1, and he actually used the Old Testament to defend Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. He did. Some surmise that he is thinking of Deuteronomy 1, 16 through 17, when Moses says, I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case is, if the case is too hard for you, then bring it to me, Moses says, and I'll hear it. End quote. Could be that he's thinking of that passage. Whatever, he's using the due process prescribed in the Old Testament to defend the Messiah. And you know what? Suddenly, it's not such a safe, familiar place anymore for Nicodemus. There's a growing distance. Something's different from him and the rest. Makes you wonder. You think the wind blew? Can he now see? Well, we have to fast forward to the end now, where we started. Go back to John chapter 19 with me. John chapter 19. This is our third and final meeting, and we're finished. Remember what we read, starting with verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea set the stage, gaining access to the body of Jesus. It was given. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, to Jesus, also came. The words also came mean that Nicodemus is sharing this entire scene with Joseph. And if Joseph is a secret disciple, some surmise on those words that this is a meeting of disciples, followers of Jesus. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So we have a question for this third meeting. Remember our questions? Question number one, where is he? We have to set the scene. A lot of times in the children's storybooks, these two are moving about in the shadows, sneaking around the tomb, kind of hiding. Staying out of sight. It's not how it went down. The sun is still high enough in the sky to be called Sunday, or to be called Friday. It wasn't until sundown on Friday that the next day started with the Jews. The sun is plenty high in the sky, and they're not alone. The scene at the foot of the cross and in that surrounding area was a huge spectacle, public spectacle. The Roman crucifixions. There are plenty of Jews around still, plenty of Romans, plenty of soldiers. Even when he requested the body of Jesus, Joseph did, to Pilate, Pilate asked the soldiers, make sure he's dead. 
I mean, there's a lot of people around. This isn't in the shadows. And by the way, it's not just any day crucifixion outside of Jerusalem. This is during Passover, when the population with pilgrims is in the hundreds of thousands. It's not yet sundown. It's not yet Sabbath. That's where he is. It's very public. Second question is, well, who's he with in this meeting? I can give you two names. Although there's the crowd there that's dissipating somewhat, perhaps not yet. We do know from the other Gospels there are a few female disciples of Jesus from Galilee. But as far as Nicodemus, in his mind, he's with two people right now. He's, li- he's with a living colleague from the Sanhedrin, another fellow leader in the Sanhedrin, by the way. That's Joseph. And he's with the body of Jesus, very limp. What did they do? Well, publicly, they were given access and permission to, however, get the cross out of the ground, get the cross, or get the cross laid down, and gently pull the hands and the feet back through the nails. How long did that take? I don't know. They took the body down, and I don't know if they did the work there or they took it closer to the garden, but they washed the body, hands involved in everything. They prepared it for burial with spices and wrappings. And because the Sabbath was was getting ready to start, they had to be hurried as they transported the body of Jesus to Joseph's tomb. And they're the ones that rolled the stone closed. Took some time. Can you see it? There are hushed tones. There's a fixed gaze on every inch of our Lord's body as they tend to it with great care and with gentle hands and with king thoughts. Jesus did say in that first meeting, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. Looks like they can. They're handling him like a king. But the third question we need to ask this scene as well is this. Well, what is Nicodemus' response? What's the response? One word. Sacrifice. It's, he's not pulling out a lamb and, or, or some sacrificial animal or grain and offering a sacrifice. I don't mean that kind of a sacrifice. It says here in the New American that, that he brought spices to the tune of 100 pounds. Now, that's, that's tricky to discern that as we come into what we would call a, a Roman pound, but many surmise it was as much as 65 to 75 pounds of spices. He had it at the ready. Remember, the, the, the ladies from Galilee had to wait till, early, or wait till sundown on Saturday before they could go to market to get a few spices. Nicodemus and Joseph had a, a, a whole storehouse of it ready. One tradition says the two of them were hiding in his garden tomb with the spices already. It's not in the Bible, but an interesting tradition. They were in cahoots. They were, they were colleagues of each other. But it credits... Nicodemus with bringing these spices, with Nicodemus purchasing these, having them at the ready. Sure, this man Nicodemus was wealthy, but now 
this man Nicodemus is disconnected to his cash. Something, or better, someone mattered more to him now than accounts and acclaim and applause. You know, Jesus once told a parable. Matthew chapter 13. It goes like this. It's a one-verse parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Because you get the field, you get the treasure. Interesting parable as we consider the story of Nicodemus. Well, fast forward from Friday night into Saturday, and we look at this tomb and your soldiers guarding it. And fast forward to early Sunday morning. We got the angels coming in, moving the rocks, scaring the soldiers. They're falling down, looks like they're dead, you know, uh, greeting the women. The women are coming, right? And Mary Magdalene actually has the opportunity of, we believe, first contact with the resurrected Lord. Then we tell the, she tells the disciples, they come running. John outruns Peter. Peter pushes him aside and goes into what was probably about a three-foot opening and finds the tomb empty. And so we celebrate Easter, right? But I always wonder about the story of Nicodemus in those three meetings. Only in John's gospel. Spread out from beginning to end. You know, he's one of the only persons in the gospels, in the gospel of John, that has direct contact with Jesus and shows up so frequently throughout the whole gospel. He's not the only one, but he's one of the few. He's all through this gospel that would circulate the globe to our generation. And then you know what happens? Nicodemus disappears. That's it. Nowhere else in scripture. He disappears from scripture, but he doesn't disappear from tradition. I have a few up here with me. I did a little research this week. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says that uh, there is some evidence that, that or, or, or it's worded this way, Nicodemus, according to one tradition, gave evidence in favor of Christ at the trial before Pilate. Another tradition says that Nicodemus was deposed from his Sanhedrin office. These are just traditions, but hear them out. Another tradition says that he was baptized by Peter and John. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia also says that this Nicodemus was banished from Jerusalem. And one tradition even says, according to Isby, that his remains are reportedly found in a common grave along with those of Gamaliel. Just a tradition. It's interesting, isn't it? The Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia has a tradition. A Nicodemus Ben-Gorion, who was a brother to the historian Josephus, a very wealthy member of the Sanhedrin in the first century, has been identified by some with this man Nicodemus in the New Testament who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus Ben-Gorion later lost his wealth and position so that some have attributed this reversal of circumstances to his having become a Christian. Now, there's some doubt about that tradition, but I find it interesting. But as I was thinking through this, I'm like, I've heard something. I've heard a sermon about this. 
and another tradition given, and I remembered who it was. It was John MacArthur at Shepherd's Conference within the last five years as he preached on John 3. So I did some research and I found his statement. And I'm just going to quote John MacArthur here. Nicodemus's family was reduced to utter poverty, according to a tradition, so severe that there's a charming story about his daughter. And his daughter, on behalf of the family, they were so poor, this daughter was reduced to the shame of digging in the dung piles to find grain for her and her family to eat. The daughter of Nicodemus is approached by a rabbi who sees her looking for seeds in the dung pile and asks who she is. And she replied, I am the daughter of Nicodemus, to which the rabbi supposedly said, What happened to your father? The girl says he followed Christ and was banished. And the rabbi turned his back on that girl and refused to help her. I believe that as you now have an understanding of this stranger's story, the story of Nicodemus, it has forced some heavy questions of your own heart this Easter morning. The questions would be like this. First, can you see the kingdom? Can you see the king? Has the wind blown in your life? Have you been born again? If not, hear these opening words from John's gospel. If you, if, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You need to believe that he is the infinite God-man. That you need a savior from your sin. Wrath is coming. And he took the full brunt of it. So you don't have to. Will you come to him this morning? If you can believe that. If you can see your sin. If you can see the king. Guess what? The wind is blowing. Run towards him. And be born again. Because without him, you can't see. Without Jesus, you aren't alive. Without Jesus, you're missing the very one you need and the only one you need. But with Jesus, everything will change. Second question. With the passing of time, is there more and more daylight and space showing between you and those who can't see the king? I'm just going to let that question hang out in the air for a moment. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, This I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the emptiness of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Third question. Are you living lavishly Are you giving lavishly and with great abandon because you have found your treasure and your treasure is a person, Jesus? I agree with Pastor Kent Hughes when he was pastoring at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. 
talking about John 3, he says, Sometimes the wind of the Spirit is a raging power. Other times it blows gently so that you can see it almost imperceptibly move a leaf. But I think the winds of the Spirit were roaring with Nicodemus. There's a few people I want to look for in heaven. First of all, after I get over the shock that I'm there. I want to look for Jesus. I want to look for David. Might ask him to flex. I want to look for Job, because I, I have a few questions for Job. I want to look for Paul. I want to look for Simon the Zealot and say, yeah, before Jesus, tell me about your training. Just curious. But I want to look for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, when did the wind blow? Because there's no doubt at the end. Father, we thank you for this Easter morning, 2023. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the empty tomb. But thank you for the story that unfolds at the closing of the tomb that Friday evening. Thank you for the story of Nicodemus. Thank you for moving your servant John to make sure Nicodemus has some major real estate in the course of those 21 chapters. Because you wrote so that we could believe. I pray for those under the sound of my voice in this room, as well as through technology. If they have never been born again, I pray that they will confess their sin right now. That they would ask you to be their savior from their sin. To be the Lord of their lives since you are the infinite God-man. I pray that your spirit will give them birth, that your spirit would blow. Father, give them faith and repentance right now. And if they would like to talk to someone this morning, I pray they'll come and talk to anyone they've seen on stage here this morning. And we'll take them privately to a room and open the Bible and show them how they can know for certain that they have your free gift of eternal life. Would you do that? And for those who are believers in the room, I pray that we will take instruction from this great teacher, Nicodemus, who teaches us now that when we are born again, there's a growing distinction between us and anyone who's not been born again. Because we can see we're alive and we're lavish in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray.